It's 1138 um, Hawaii Aleutian Standard Time. Supposed to be, uh, this is a Omar WJ show. Omar WJ speaking. Supposed to be scattered showers tomorrow. And in the 70s. I have a recording that I made the other day. Um, a book review I read. So I'll play that. This is a book review in the New York Times. Um, just give me a moment. Sorry. I think that's one of my trademark um, sayings here on the um, on the podcast. This is um, by Hector Tobar. The review. And uh, it's 2 a.m. in a Little America by Ben Kalfas. More than one... Okay, just a moment. I gotta get my... Turn my um, display and brightness thing to more than 15 seconds. Excuse me. Please forgive me. Just... um, More than one observer of the social and political life of the United States has noted that our country feels if, as if it's drifting toward civil war. We're already divided into competing tribes of activists, officials, and media personalities. From time to time, in places as diverse as Portland, Oregon, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Charlottesville, Virginia, these divisions have produced actual street battles with bloodshed and lost lives. In Cal- Ken Calfus's deeply intriguing new novel, 2 a.m. in Little America, the next American Civil War has already taken place. The people of the United States have become the world's newest and biggest cohort of refugees, following Syrians and Salvadorans and many others into the cross-border and trans-oceanic routes of mass migration and diaspora. As the novel opens, the Americans living in exile in an unnamed country form an underclass of low-wage labor exploited and vilified by the locals. The refugees carry the stigma of their Americanness and studiously avoid one another's company. We were humiliated by what had happened. We would have reminded each other only of our grief and our shame, Kalfas writes. The uprooted Americans can see that the locals have the deepest contempt for how far our country had fallen. Kalfas is the author of half a dozen novels and story collections, and his fiction often makes use of the events of the day. The September 11th attacks, Chernobyl, the Iraq war. I don't know which Iraq war he's talking about. I guess the last one. To create mordant satires and allegories about modern life. In 2 a.m. in Little America, name of the book, he turns the conceit of his novel into a tense and often beautiful work of reflection on the American present. His protagonist, Ron Patterson, that's an American name, 
is an apolitical man exiled as a young adult from a city somewhere in the American heartland, the notorious site of some of the ugliest incidents of the Civil War. Patterson is a loner, and as with so many immigrants and refugees in the real United States, his legal status is precarious in his adopted country. He's forced to watch and listen as anti-immigrant activists express their grievances. A million unemployed is a million immigrants too many, reads an airplane banner ad. The tables have turned on the American people, and Calthus milks the irony in some ways that are predictable and in others that are truly surprising. K-L-F-U-S. Looks like a nice cover on the book. Um, At first, Patterson's exile is a deeply existential one focused on an obsession with a woman he thinks he sees everywhere in his adopted city. Then he's forced to flee to yet another country where he settles in an enclave of Americans. In this little America, he's thrust into a political drama. Competing militias of American exiles are intent on continuing their internecine warfare on foreign ground. And we learn about the atrocities both sides committed back home. Anyone familiar with the violence inflicted by the United States and its proxies in various imperial adventures around the globe will recognize the inspiration for Kalfas's imagined backstory. Most notably, the crimes at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Once again, the chickens have come home to roost. What's more interesting in Little America is an idea Kalfas repeats often, that the displaced Americans have a look and way of being that sets them apart from the locals. Nostalgic for the... This is a book review in the New York Times. Um... Just give me a moment. Sorry. I think. Okay. I'm just gonna. You can look that up. I'll uh, put the guy's name in the. Um, um, in the title. Um, just saw this on AP News. And this is good news. Oh. So. Anyway. Um. A lot of people are looking at that right now. Um, Representative Cawthorn has lost in the GOP primary to a guy named Edwards. So that's um, good news for everybody but Cawthorn. Um, and let's see what else is here. AP News. Um... Uh, Buffalo shooting leaves neighborhood without a grocery store. This is by Pia Sarkar and Noreen Nasser. Top's friendly market was more than a place to buy groceries. As the only supermarket for miles, it became a sort of community hub on Buffalo's east side where you chatted with neighbors and caught up on people's lives. It's where we go to buy bread and stay for 15, 20 minutes because you're going to find four or five people you know and have a couple of 
conversations before you leave, said Buffalo City Councilman Ulysses Owingo, who represents a struggling black neighborhood where he grew up. Just feel good because this is your store. Now residents are grieving the deaths of 10 black people at the hands of an 18-year-old white man who drove three hours to carry out a racist live stream shooting rampage in the crowded supermarket on Saturday. They're also grappling with being targeted in a place that had been so vital to the community. Before Tops opened on the east side in 2003, Residents had to travel to other communities to buy nutritious food or settle for snacks and higher-priced staples like milk and eggs from corner stores and gas stations. Um, While Tops is temporarily closed during the investigation, the community is working to make sure its residents don't go without a makeshift food bank was set up not far from the supermarket. The Buffalo community fridge received enough monetary donations that it will distribute some other funds to other local organizations. Tops also arranged for a bus to shuttle Eastside residents to and from another of its Buffalo locations. Uh, After decades of neglect and decline, only a handful of stores are along Jefferson Avenue, the east side's once-thriving main drag, among them a family dollar, a deli, a liquor store, and a couple of convenience stores, as well as a library and black-run businesses like Golden Cup Coffee, Zawaldi Books, and The Challenger News. Julian Hainsworth, who was born and raised there, said construction of an expressway contributed to the cutting off the neighborhood with drivers passing underground without ever having to see it. At a recent rally, Hainsworth said she asked the crowd how many needed GPS to get there, and many of the white people raised their hands. A lot of people who talk about Buffalo don't live here, said Hainsworth, the city's poet laureate and director of leadership development at Open Buffalo. Um, okay. Um, I thought they were going to talk about the grocery store in the picture. That was on AP News, so if you want to see about that, you can check it out. Um, so, um, this is 11 minutes long, and that's 11 minutes long enough. Um, so I'll, um, try to keep these, uh, short and as newsworthy and entertaining as possible. Sorry to speak about Buffalo. I was, um... One reason I do these news digests is because I read the news myself. And um, I'm sitting alone in a hotel room and um, I have a way to interact. Um, Also, I do these for my wife who tunes in. And um, she speaks English as a second language. I should say she's trilingual now. But um, 
Um, maybe my son also listens in. He's bilingual. Um, so, um, primary aim is to instruct. I mean, primary aim is to entertain. Second to, is to instruct. This is Omar WJ. Thanks for listening.